everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. This is your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got a new show for this week and lots of news to cover. Uh, I wrecked one of those other weeks where I really had a hard time deciding what to pick. Um, so even so, we've got plenty to cover today. We're going to talk about uh, a Bluetooth bug that's pretty nasty uh, that will allow for potentially allow for man-in-the-middle attacks. I'll explain all that. We're going to talk about an uptick in a kind of a classic malware scheme called Emotet. And then I've got several articles today about Apple, and none of them are good. So let it be known that even though I'm an Apple fanboy, we can still cover the negative news too. And there's there's actually plenty. There's a malware screw-up that uh, Apple allowed malware to get on the App Store. One of the really cool privacy features that I've talked about in the show for iOS 14 has been inexplicably, well, not inexplicably, uh, it's been delayed until next year, and we'll talk about why I don't think that was necessary. And I'll have a brief update on the Apple and Epic saga. Uh, we're going to talk about that in more detail with Cory Doctor, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But I wanted to, I told you I'd keep you up to date, so I, there's been some new things there. We'll talk about that. Then we've got some really big wins for privacy. Uh, there's been a big court ruling saying that the NSA phone snooping was illegal, thanks to something that Snowden uncovered like seven years ago. And Portland just passed the strongest facial recognition ban in the United States. We're going to talk about that. We talked about browser fingerprinting with Marshall Irwin last week from uh, Mozilla. And there's been a recent study that shows how prevalent fingerprinting is out there. And and that was kind of shocking. I talked to you about a, a, a secure messaging app that I really haven't mentioned very often because I usually recommend Signal. Uh, but there's another one out there called Threema. That, that I've maybe brought up a couple times that's decided to go open source. And that was actually one of the reasons why I didn't really recommend it over Signal. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. And finally, we'll round it out with a tip of the week. I ran across a really good article in the Naked Security blog from Sophos about fake web alerts. And they're really, really clever. And so uh, it, it's a good thing to kind of talk about how to recognize them and what and what to do about those things. Got a couple big news items for you. First of all, my book is out, finally. Well, it's on A-Press's site. If you go to A-Press, you could buy it right now. It's not on Barnes & Noble, and it's not on Amazon yet, but I can't imagine it will, it will be long. In fact, probably by the time this comes out, I bet they'll be there as well. So that's really big news. Can't wait to get one myself. A lot of time, big-time publishers, you know, for big-time authors, will have these what they call galley copies, where, you know, kind of like preview copies that are prior to print or official print, and you get these things and you send them out to reviewers and whatever. Uh, that's not me. <laughs> so I have to wait like everybody else to get my hands on a copy of this book, and thankfully it won't be much longer now. And, of course, the book giveaway is underway, only three weeks left, uh, and you can enter multiple ways. So uh, you can use that time to enter multiple times. I'll give you those details uh, after we go through the news. And since there's so much to get to, let's let's get right to it. All right, first up, uh, there's an article here about a new Bluetooth bug. And of course, Bluetooth is the wireless technology we all know and love that allows us to connect our cell phones usually to things like wireless headphones or our, our cars or those nifty little portable wireless speakers that everybody loves. But it also lets you connect, you know, wireless keyboards and mice to computers and other things like that. It's very, very handy, very flexible. Uh, however, it's a closed specification, and that means generally that it's not open for, you know, peer review and security review, and you're going to have problems like this probably. And not that you wouldn't if there was under review too, but you'd probably, you know, with a lot more eyes on it, you, things like what I'm about to tell you about <laughs> might not happen. So uh, let me read a little bit from this Apple Insider article, and it, it's Apple slanted, but this really affects anything with Bluetooth. So that would be Android phones as well. So keep that in mind as I'm reading through the article. A new Bluetooth vulnerability could allow an attacker to downgrade or bypass Bluetooth encryption keys, opening the door to man-in-the-middle attacks or other types of malicious exploits. And I'll start stop right there to explain some terms. So... Uh, the downgrade or bypassing keys. So encryption keys are the uh, the really, they're basically like passwords, but they're usually auto-generated for you and handled behind the scenes so you don't have to worry about them. Uh, but when you pair your Bluetooth device with something else, Bluetooth is encrypted. The, the, the communications, the wireless communications are encrypted 
And kind of like you do with your computer browser, where your browser sets up an encrypted connection with whatever website you're going to when you're using HTTPS without you having to actually do anything about that, you're, you know, when you pair a device together, they do this kind of a similar cryptographic handshake uh, where they generate and exchange encryption keys. Uh, so, and like any encryption standard, uh, they get better over time, uh, longer keys, better encryption me mechanisms. So what it's, what it's talking about downgrade here, what that means is they're the older versions, the really old, old versions of these encryption things are often hacked, which is why no one never uses them anymore. But for backward compatibility, some of these devices still support them anyway. Uh, so one of the things this this man in the middle thing uh, would allow you to do is either to directly uh, directly overwrite the encryption keys so that you you override them with your the keys that you know and now basically you can get in on the conversation uh, or maybe you can overwrite those keys with um, an older version of that encryption that is crackable uh, and man in the middle is a thing where uh, like I get between you and somebody else like so if Alice and Bob want to talk securely uh, but Mallory wants to get in the middle and M for man in the middle, even though it's a female in the classic case of Mallory. Anyway, so uh, what happens is, is Alice believes that she's talking to Bob, but in reality, Alice is talking to Mallory and then Mallory is turning around and sending the message to Bob and vice versa. So she is a quote unquote man in the middle. And that is what we're talking about here too. All right. Sorry. So <laughs> let me get back to the article. The flaw dubbed blur tooth resides in a component of the cross-transport key derivation standard and leaves devices vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks or other exploits. It affects all quote-unquote dual-mode devices running Bluetooth 4.0 or 5.0, which includes the iPad Pro to the iPhone 11, and as I said before, also Android, Android devices too. According to the security notice by the Bluetooth Special Interest Group, or SIG Special Interest Group, researchers at Purdue University, my alma mater, and this is uh, appears to be a French. I'm going to probably butcher this, but I only have to say it once. So uh, the other uh, the other group involved is École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne. Uh, I'm just guessing. Uh, discovered that the CTKD, that's the cross-transport key derivation, may permit escalation of access between two devices. I know, technical. Just hang with me here. You don't really need to know these terms, but uh, they're littered throughout this article. So... Anyway, keeping going, the CTKD component is used to negotiate authentication keys when pairing two Bluetooth devices together. However, the researchers discovered that an attack could leverage this CTKD to overwrite other Bluetooth keys, granting them access to other Bluetooth-capable apps or services on an affected device. The SIG notes that the vulnerability can be used to overwrite keys completely or force a downgrade to keys that use weaker encryption. And a quote from the SIG, they say, This may permit a man-in-the-middle attack between devices previously bonded using authenticated pairing when those peer devices are both vulnerable. In theory, attacks like these could lead to theft of data or other malicious activity, but it isn't clear whether device-level restrictions or security features could mitigate the risks. At this point, there's no given timeline for a patch. Because of that, the only real way to mitigate it on affected devices could be to pay close attention to which Bluetooth devices your device is connected to. And I don't know why that would help. Maybe if you're, there's a man in the middle, you could actually see that it's not, it's got a weird name. Uh, that's, you know, as opposed to AirPods, it's now malicious man in the middle device <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Apple's iOS security features may provide some level of protection. Apple also requires apps to obtain permission from the users before they connect to a, to a service or accessory using Bluetooth. App sandboxing should prevent a compromised service from accessing data in other apps. Additionally, the SIG, that's a special interest group, notes that there's a mechanism that can be deployed in the updated Bluetooth 5.1 standard to mitigate the attack. Because of that, devices running Bluetooth 5.1 should be considered safe. Okay, so I know there's a lot of technical stuff in there, but basically, most modern devices are running Bluetooth 4 or Bluetooth 5. And if they are, it's possible... That and, and you would have to be within range of the devices. So this is not something somebody from Russia is going to do to your iPhone. This is someone's got to be at Bluetooth range is like 33 feet, I think. So somebody would have to be close to you and trying to maliciously attack your devices and kind of insert themselves into the Bluetooth connection between you and your AirPods or you and whatever Bluetooth device you might be paired to. And then if it can successfully do that, 
they're saying theoretically that that might allow them to get up to mischief. So there's a lot of ifs here. And the fact that someone has to be, you know, close to you to do it probably means you're, you're not that much at risk. Uh, or this might be most at risk. It might be public places like airports or malls or, you know, places where there's a lot of people around that tend to have technology going where someone might be able to sit in a coffee shop or one of these places and look for devices that are vulnerable and then try to hack you. But given that we're all in the middle of a pandemic, there's not a lot of public gathering going around. All right, I've seen several articles recently about an uptick in a particular malware variant called Emotet, E-M-O-T-E-T. It's been around for a while, which we'll discover when I read this article to you. But apparently there's been a real spike lately. So I wanted to bring it up, make sure you're aware of it and you're being extra vigilant. So this is from uh, The Hacker News. Cybersecurity agencies across Asia and Europe have issued multiple security alerts regarding the resurgence of an email-based Emotet malware attacks targeting businesses in France, Japan, and New Zealand. And by the way, just because the, your country may not be in that list, I would not, uh, I would not feel safe. Listen up anyway. There's a quote here from New Zealand's Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, and they say, quote, the emails contain malicious attachments or links that the receiver is encouraged to download. These links and attachments may look like genuine invoices, financial documents, shipping information, resumes, scanned documents, or information on COVID-19, but they are fake, unquote. First identified in 2014 and distributed by a threat group tracked as TA-542, uh, also affectionately called Mummy Spider, Emotet has since evolved from its original roots as a simple banking trojan to a modular Swiss army knife that can serve as a downloader, information stealer, and spam bot depending on how it's deployed. In recent months, the malware strain has been linked to several botnet-driven mal-spam, that's the first time I've ever seen that word, mal-spam campaigns, and even capable of delivering more dangerous payloads such as the Ryuk ransomware by renting its botnet of compromised machines to other malware groups. And... What's really telling is this graph that's on this thing, which you can't see. <laughs> but what's kind of interesting, though, is it shows uh, ever since about mid-July, it's a day-by-day -day graph of, of these email campaigns with this particular variant in it. And, it, and they start off at about 500,000 a day. Uh, and the, the interesting thing, too, is it's only during weekdays, which you know kind of means that it's probably targeting businesses. And then spikes up to about double that, and then eventually just goes off the charts within the last uh, last couple of weeks or so. So finishing off the article, it says, typically spread via large-scale phishing email campaigns involving malicious Microsoft Word or password-protected zip file attachments, the recent wave of attacks has taken advantage of a technique called email thread hijacking. It works by exfiltrating email conversations and attachments from compromised mailboxes to craft convincing phishing lures that take the form of a malicious response to existing ongoing email threads between the infected victim and other participants in order to make the emails seem more credible. The bottom line here is that there are still several malware campaigns out there. This particular one is really on the rise. It looks like it's targeting businesses and, you know, just be really, really careful on what links or attachments you open uh, from emails, even if there appears to be from somebody you know, even if it appears to be a response to an email chain you've already got going. One thing I will note here is there is a, they created a, a tool called EmoCheck. Uh, it's not really for the faint of heart. It's a command line thing that you run on uh, Windows. But if you want to go to github.com, uh, they've got the source code there and some instructions on how to use it. And it's github.com slash, and these, this next part is all caps, J-P-C-E-R-T-C-C slash EmoCheck with capital E and capital C. E-M-O-C-H-E-C-K. So if you're a sysadmin or working at a small business and you're curious about uh, seeing if maybe you're infected on your Windows machines, uh, that's a tool that supposedly will help you do that. All right, now I've got no less than three unflattering articles about Apple. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, and this is really kind of scary, but basically Apple mistakenly notarized uh, in a digital way uh, very common malware for Mac, meaning that it was allowed to get through the Apple App Store defenses. Uh, it was fixed. We'll check that here in a minute. But it just goes to show that you know, even companies like Apple that try really hard to have these lockdown app stores to increase security it doesn't always work. So let me read this article from TechCrunch. Apple has some of the strictest rules to prevent malicious software from landing in its app store, even if on occasion a bad app slips through the net. 
But last year, Apple took its toughest approach yet by requiring developers to submit their apps for security checks in order to run on millions of Macs unhindered. The process, which Apple calls notarization, scans an app for security issues and malicious content. If approved, the Mac's inbuilt security screening software, Gatekeeper, allows the app to run. Apps that don't pass the security sniff test are denied and are blocked from running. But security researchers say they have found the first Mac malware inadvertently notarized by Apple. Peter Dantini, working with Patrick Wardle, uh, and we've had Patrick on the show, I'd love to get him back. He's a really amazing uh, Mac security researcher found a malware campaign disguised as an Adobe Flash installer. These campaigns are common and have been around for years, even if Flash is rarely used these days, and most run unnotarized code, which Macs block immediately when opened. But Dantini and Wardle found that one malicious Flash installer had code notarized by Apple and would run on Macs. Wardle confirmed that Apple had approved code used by the popular Schleyer malware, which security firm Kaspersky said is the most common threat that Macs faced in 2019. Schleyer is a kind of adware that intercepts encrypted web traffic, even from HTTPS-enabled sites, and it replaces websites and search results with its own ads, making fraudulent ad money for the operators. Wordle said that means Apple did not detect the malicious code when it was submitted and approved it to run on Macs. Apple revoked the notarized payloads after Wordle reached out, preventing the malware from running on Macs in the future. In a statement, a spokesman from Apple told TechCrunch, quote, Malicious software constantly changes and Apple's notarization system helps us keep malware off the Mac and allow us to respond quickly when it's discovered. Upon learning of this adware, we revoked the identified variant, disabled the developer account, and revoked the associated certificates. We thank the researchers for their assistance in keeping our users safe, unquote. But Wardle said that the attackers were back soon after with a new notarized payload able to circumvent the Mac security all over again. Apple confirmed to TechCrunch that it also blocked that payload. The cat and mouse game continues. And actually, that last part is really kind of the key. Uh, this is a cat and mouse game. I think we actually used that exact metaphor uh, when we were talking with Marshall Irwin. The bad guys do something new, and then the good guys find some way to block that, and then it just goes back and forth. But the other takeaway here is that Apple goes to great lengths to protect its users, uh, some would say too far, and Cory Doctor is probably going to be one of them, by not allowing you to run certain software, and particularly on iOS devices. It's very strict about what they allow. You can only buy things that are from the App Store. That's your only choice. Uh, unlock on Android, which if you go ahead and disable security settings, you're allowed to quote-unquote sideload applications that don't come from the Google Play Store. But Apple so far has not allowed that, and uh, we'll get, definitely get into that with uh, with Corey. But on Mac, it's a little bit more loose. So uh, Mac is a little bit more like Android in that, by default, anything that's not notarized by Apple will not run without you saying explicitly, yes, I'm taking a risk, I'm willing to take that risk, go ahead. But what Patrick Wardle found here was something slipped through the cracks, something got through Apple's automated security testing and allowed this you know, it wasn't, it's not malware in the sense of ransomware or something that's directly harmful, but this adware was still bad and it slipped through the cracks somehow. Apple fixed it, then it slipped through again and Apple fixed it again. So this will happen and we just have to hope that people like Patrick find it and Apple, uh, thanks to their, the way their system works, can quickly shut it down and prevent this from these apps from ever running again. All right, next up, I've talked about this feature. I've already touted this feature as coming in iOS 14, which should be out probably in the next month or so when the, the new iPhones are, are, are announced. And they've got some really cool privacy features. And this is something I thought was really great. And basically, the upshot is that Apple was going to force applications to tell you when they are tracking you and give you the option of saying no. What a concept, right? Uh, I was really happy to see this. I was <laughs> couldn't wait for this to come out in iOS 14, but there was so much pushback, apparently, that Apple has uh, postponed that, that feature. So let me read this article uh, from BGR.com about what happened here. When Apple revealed iOS 14 at WWDC, which is their worldwide developer conference, most of us focused on the new features and the changes to the home screen with widgets finally making their debut in an app library that makes it much easier to search through all the software you've installed on your phone. In the meantime, the rest of the industry was far more concerned about a privacy feature that would require apps to ask users for permission to track them or access their advertising identifier. After an uproar from Facebook and others, Apple has delayed its enforcement of this new policy. First reported by the information 
Apple still plans to roll out the feature alongside iOS 14 this fall, but it won't actually require any apps to seek your permission to track you until early next year. This appears to be the compromise Apple reached after many app developers, including Facebook, repeatedly criticized Apple for the move, claiming the update, quote, may render audience networks so ineffective on iOS 14 that it may not make sense to offer it on iOS 14, unquote. Several other publishers echoed Facebook's sentiments in Wall Street Journal articles. And then there's a quote here from Apple. It says, quote, We are committed to ensuring users can choose whether or not they allow apps to track them. To give developers time to make necessary changes, apps will be required to obtain permission to track users starting early next year. Unquote. On one hand, the feature looks to be a clear win for privacy advocates, forcing developers to not only ask users for permission to collect and share their data, but also requiring them to feature a privacy information section on the App Store listing for their apps. That information will include the types of data it collects, how it will use that data, and whether or not the app or any third-party partners plan to use data to track users. Apple already confirmed that the iOS 12 rollout will be a few weeks later than expected this year due to COVID-19, which means that the launch of iOS 14 may be delayed as well. That said, when the update does arrive, don't expect all your apps to suddenly ask for your permission to track you as Apple won't require developers to take this step until 2021. The company did not provide a specific date, but we'll likely learn more this fall. Okay, so that's truly disappointing. And part of the reason Apple has their Worldwide Developer Conference in June, early June, is to basically give developers, you know, three to four months usually to handle all the new changes in, in iOS. So I really don't know. I, I can't imagine why this needs to be delayed. Certainly, it, I, my guess is it would not be that hard for app developers to incorporate this. They just don't want to. So I can't imagine how waiting until 2021 is going to change their minds. It's not like they really need time to implement this. And Apple, surely Apple knew what it was getting into when it did this, and it was, th it was the right thing to do. So it really, honestly, kind of bothers me that Apple stepped back here. I don't, I don't know if there was something else going on here, but, you know, maybe Facebook or one of these other, you know, app makers, you know, applied some leverage somehow behind the scenes. I don't know. Let's hope Apple sticks to its guns and brings this feature back as soon as possible. And one more article about Apple. Uh, the whole Apple versus Epic Games uh, has gotten, well, epic. Apple has countersued Epic uh, for willful brazen and unlawful conduct and seeking breach of contract damages from Epic. So it's been this real, it's really kind of gotten ridiculous, honestly, on both sides. And I think Apple is definitely going to have to make some changes as a result of this. But, man, it's really, it's a thorny issue because there's the legal part and then there's, you know, there's what's legal and there's what's right. And I think the problem here is not that it's, I think Apple probably has every legal right to do what it's doing, but that doesn't make it morally right. So again, we're going to dig into this with uh, Cory Doctor, but I just want to read this quote from Apple and kind of give you an update on where things are at because it's, it's pretty ugly. So this is a quote from Apple. It says, Although Epic portrays itself as a modern corporate Robin Hood, in reality it is a multi-billion dollar enterprise that simply wants to pay nothing for the tremendous value it derives from the App Store. Epic's demands for special treatment and cries of retaliation cannot be reconciled with its flagrant breach of contract and its own business practices, as it rakes in billions by taking commissions on game developer sales and charging consumers up to $99.99 for bundles of V-Bucks which is some sort of uh, currency used in the Fortnite game. So back to the quote from Apple, it says, For years, Epic took advantage of everything the App Store had to offer. It availed itself of the tools, technology, software, marketing opportunities, and customer reach that Apple provided so that it could bring games like Infinity Blade and Fortnite to Apple customers all over the world. It enjoyed the tremendous resources that Apple pours into its App Store to constantly innovate and create new opportunities for developers and experiences for customers, as well as to review and approve every app, keeping the App Store safe and secure for customers and developers alike, unquote. Epic, Apple says, has used more than 400 of Apple's APIs and frameworks, five versions of the Apple SDK, has had its apps reviewed more than 200 times, and has pushed more than 140 updates to Apple customers. Apple says that it also provided advertising each time Epic released a new version of Fortnite, offering, quote-unquote, free promotion and favorable tweets to more than 500 million end users. So again, you know, I think, you know, Apple has got a point on some level, and certainly I think I'm sure that their contracts forbid exactly what Fortnite tried to do, and I'm sure they're well within the legal rights to countersue, but Apple's 
probably going to have to relent on this somewhere, probably by doing exactly what Android does. And that is, you know, if the, if the user says, I'm willing to take the risk, then it would allow the user to load apps from some other app store. And if that ever happens, by the way, I will recommend you don't do that for security reasons. But I think it's still important that Apple give you that option. As Corey's fond of saying, if you pay $1,000 for some computer that fits in your pocket, you should be able to put whatever software on it you want. So anyway, <laughs> Corey and I will get into that deeply when we talk about it on his interview. All right, next up. Now we have some more positive news. Uh, first of all, a court has ruled, a, a big-time court in the United States, that the NSA phone tapping was illegal. Uh, so let me read this article. This was from Yahoo News. The National Security Agent Program that swept up details on billions of, Amer of Americans' phone calls was illegal and possibly unconstitutional, a federal appeals court ruled on Wednesday. However, the unanimous three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said the role the so-called telephone metadata program played in a criminal terror fundraising case against four Somali immigrants was so minor that it did not undermine their convictions. The long-awaited decision is a victory for prosecutors, but some language into the court's opinion could be viewed as a rebuke of sorts to officials who, de who defended the snooping by pointing to the case involving Basali Maulin? and three other men found guilty in a San Diego jury in 2013 on charges of fundraising for al-Shabaab. Judge Marsha Burzin's opinion, which contains a half-dozen references to the role of formal NSA contractor and whistleblower Edward Snowden in declosing the NSA metadata program, concludes that the bulk collection of such data violated the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The call-tracking effort began without court authorization under President George W. Bush following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. A similar program was approved by the secretive FISA court beginning in 2006 and renewed numerous times, but the Ninth Circuit panel said those rulings were legally flawed. The appeals court stopped just short of saying that the snooping was definitely unconstitutional, but rejected the Justice Department's arguments that collecting the metadata did not amount to a search under a 40-year-old legal precedent because customers voluntarily share such info with telephone providers. And voluntary is a strong word. There's basically no way for you to have your phone service or cell phone service if you don't. Anyway, back to the article. During the public debate over the program, triggered, as the opinion notes, in a half dozen places by disclosures from Snowden, numerous officials pointed to the Maulin prosecution as concrete evidence that the program was contributing to the U.S. prosecutions of terrorism. The metadata program was officially shut down in 2015 after Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which provided a new mechanism where phone providers retained their data instead of turning it over to the government. The revamped system appears to have been abandoned by the NSA in 2018 or 2019. The case may not be over yet. Any of the defendants or the government could seek review from a larger 11-judge on-bank court, and a Supreme Court petition is also possible. All right, so it's, it's a big victory, but we're not done yet, probably. But I think it's certainly the correct decision. I mean, yeah, there's all these really weird laws around your metadata. And metadata, of course, is data about the data. So it's not the content of your phone call. It's not a recording of what you said, but it's who you called, uh, when you called them, how long you talked, that that sort of information. Uh, for, if it's a cell phone call, it's where you were. And if, it, if the person you called was on a cell phone, it's where they were. And that metadata can actually tell you a lot of things about somebody and who they know and who they associate with. And so it should be it should be private information and seeking that information from telephone companies should require some sort of uh, a warrant instead of just massively recording everything and having full access to all of it. So anyway, I'm very heartened to see that decision and hopefully it will uh, hold up if there's any sort of a challenge. All right, next up, another privacy win. Uh, Portland, Oregon passed uh, the strongest facial recognition ban in the United States. Uh, let me read a very short bit from this article from The Verge. The Portland City Council has passed the toughest facial recognition ban in the U.S., blocking both public and private use of the technology. Other cities such as Boston, San Francisco, and Oakland have passed laws barring public institutions from using facial recognition, but Portland is the first to prohibit private use. The ban passed unanimously according to CNET, CNN, and 1-0. The new law is actually established as two ordinances. The one prohibiting public use of facial recognition is now in effect and city bureaus must complete an assessment of their facial recognition usage within 90 days. The ordinance prohibiting private use takes effect on January 1st, 2021. And here's a quote from Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. He says, quote, Portlanders should never be in fear of having their right of privacy be exploited by either their government or by a private institution, unquote. 
Facial recognition software has been found to have age, race, and ethnic biases leading to questions about civil liberties and misidentification of, of individuals by law enforcement. Amazon spent $24,000 lobbying Portland City Council commissioners against the ban. The company's been under fire for selling its recognition software to police departments and only recently agreed to a temporary one-year moratorium on providing police with the technology. So that last little bit is interesting just because, you know, there are Microsoft and Amazon and some other companies. I think Microsoft actually abandoned its facial recognition programs, but there are other companies out there doing this, including Amazon. They're trying to make a lot of money off this stuff, and they're pushing back when there's when people's privacy rights are being upheld, and there's a threat to this new business model. Okay, next article. Uh, this is about browser fingerprinting, and this is something we talked about uh, last week in our interview with the chief security officer from Mozilla. And basically, it's telling us how prevalent this is becoming, because in this whole cat and mouse game of privacy, when the browsers start blocking, you know, things like third party cookies and all this other tracking technologies, then they turn to something new and different. Because these advertising and marketing companies, uh, Google and Facebook chiefly among them, believe that knowing everything about you allows them to sell more valuable advertising to their advertising customers. Anyway, let me read this article from ZDNet. A browser fingerprinting script is a piece of JavaScript code that runs inside a web page and works by testing for the presence of certain browser features. Today, browser fingerprinting is commonly used by online advertisers as a next-gen user tracking mechanism. Advertisers run different types of fingerprinting operations, create one or more fingerprints for each user, and then use them to track the user as he, she accesses other sites on the internet. Because of the privacy-intrusive way that online advertisers are currently using browser fingerprinting, several browser makers like Firefox, Chrome, Opera, Brave, and the Tor browser have deployed features to detect and block these types of malicious code. In an academic paper published earlier this month, a team of academics from the University of Iowa, Mozilla, and the University of California, Davis, have analyzed how popular browser fingerprinting scripts are used today by website operators. Using a machine learning toolkit they developed themselves and named FP Inspector, FPM sure for fingerprinting, the research team scanned and analyzed the top 100,000 most popular websites on the internet. And a quote from the team, it says, quote, We find that browser fingerprinting is now present on more than 10% of the top 100,000 websites and over a quarter of the top 10,000 websites, unquote. However, the research team also points out that despite the range of large number of websites that are currently using browser fingerprinting, not all scripts are used for tracking. Some fingerprinting scripts are also used for fraud detection since automated bots tend to have the same or similar fingerprints, and fingerprinting scripts are a reliable method for detecting automated behavior. But the research team also analyzed which browser or JavaScript API features the scripts were trying to fingerprint. And another quote from the team, it says, quote, Our key insight is that browser fingerprinting scripts typically do not use a technique, e.g. canvas fingerprinting, in isolation, but rather combine several techniques together, unquote. Researchers says they identified clusters with recurring fingerprinting techniques, but also clusters that contain new technologies, which were previously unreported as potential fingerprinting avenues, suggesting that companies are actively investing in discovering new ways to track users based on the browser's footprint. All right, and this is actually one of the reasons I picked this article, because it goes through and enumerates some of these, some of the ways they're doing it, and I'll try to explain each one as we go. But it's just mind-blowing to think <laughs> to what lengths these guys are going to try to track us. And these are really kind of hard to avoid. Um... So anyway, let me, let me, there's like six or seven of these. Let me just read through these because they're, I find it fascinating. So the first one, uh, permissions fingerprinting. Researchers said some websites probed the browser permissions API to determine whether a permission was granted or denied by the user. Academics said they found specific cases where fingerprinting scripts had probed if the user had granted a website notification, geolocation, and camera access, and were using this information to track the user. So I'm sure you've noticed in the browser where you go to certain websites and it pops up and says, this browser would like to use your location. Would you like to allow or deny that? Uh, or they want to use your camera. Or they want to send you notifications. All these things you have to say yes or no to. And what this is basically saying is depending on your pattern of which of those things you allow and which ones you don't for, for a given website, not just all websites, but for you know, website A, you have these permissions, but website B, you have these other permissions, that if you take all those together, that kind of uniquely identifies you. All right, next up, peripheral fingerprinting. Researchers said that they also found scripts probing if websites had received access to connect to game pads and virtual reality devices, and were using this info to track users. In other cases, some websites were fingerprinting users via their keyboard layout, typically exposed via the browser's get layout map function. All right, so again, this is, I've talked about this multiple times, but fingerprinting, part of the problem with fingerprinting is that your browser, 
gives up a lot of information, sometimes uh, automatically, like with every request you make, and sometimes via these APIs, these application programming interfaces, where the JavaScript, uh, which is some code, some web code that loads up in your browser, kind of behind the scenes, you know, and JavaScript's used for all sorts of fancy things. They're usually, you know, animations and showing videos and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, but in this case, it's there. these applications are querying features of your browser and of your computer normally used to allow the website to do something particularly on your behalf. But in this case, it's just asking to ask because the answers to these questions, if it asks enough questions, uh, are going to be unique per person. All right, next up, API fingerprinting. Researchers said that some websites probed if the user's browser had specific APIs enabled. For example, some fingerprinting scripts checked for the Audio Worklet API, which is specific to the Chromium browsers only, while others checked if certain JavaScript functions like setTimeout or Mo's RTC session description were overridden by extensions. Again, what they're doing is they're probing techniques and capabilities of your browser uh, because certain browsers and certain people uh, install plugins that, that modify these things or disable some of these features. And by checking to see which things are still available and which ones are not available, again, they can you know, get a unique picture of, of each individual because not everyone has the exact same settings. All right, next up, timing fingerprinting. Researchers said they also found that some fingerprinting scripts measure the time that took for certain functions to execute. For example, some websites use the performance API to track when the events like domain lookup start, domain lookup end, DOM interactive, and MS first paint were taking place during a predefined operation. Again, <laughs> so the way they do this is they basically force your browser to go through some motions, directing it to do certain things and times how long it takes for those things to happen. And why would they be different? Well, your computer is might be faster than mine. Your browser or your browser version might be a little faster than a different browser version. And by telling it to do a series of things and timing how long each of those things take, again, that could be a unique way to identify somebody. All right, last but not least, sensor fingerprinting. Just like web animation related functions, sensors have been heavily abused in fingerprinting scripts but the research team said that they found websites that probed the little-known user proximity sensor. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't... I don't know. I, I don't know why browsers have done this. I mean, you know, the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, often called the W3C, which we're actually going to talk about next week probably, you know, is constantly trying to add really cool new features to web browsers. Um, honestly, web browsers have almost become the computer interface for most people. And, you know, most of what people do today on their computer is through a web browser. And so the web browsers are, you know, offering all sorts of cool things like, you know, access to cameras, microphones, and all sorts of other sensors that, that like, in particular, your cell phone is jam-packed with, you know, accelerometers, gyroscopes, GPS location, ambient light sensors, and proximity sensors, a how close you are to your device, I guess. Ah, it's, it's amazing. So anyway, what these clever marketing companies have figured out how to do is take advantage of all these amazing features built into your browser to use them all and figure out how one person's browser and computer differs from another person's browser and computer by looking at, you know, dozens of these different things. And when you add them all up, it makes for a unique fingerprint. And then they use that same fingerprint to track you around the web. Because when you go to a different website that loads that same fingerprinting technology, it does the same things, gets your fingerprint readout, and then compares it to the one that from the other site you just came from and says, oh, that's the same guy. One more quick article here, and then we'll get to our tip of the week. So again, as I mentioned at the top, uh, top of the show, uh, when we talk about encrypted messaging, there are different degrees of, uh, of privacy and security. Now, Apple iMessages, for example, those are encrypted end-to-end, -end, which means that even Apple cannot read your messages. However, you are not in control of the encryption keys, which is something I really wish Apple would change. And if you elect to back up your messages to the cloud in Apple's iCloud service, then Apple does have access to them. So what you really want is you want an encrypted messaging application 
that lets you control the encryption keys. Uh, and the one that I've recommended for a long time now is Signal. And the other great thing about Signal is that it's open source software, which means that security gurus like you know, Bruce Schneier and other research agencies and universities can actually pick apart the code and look and see exactly what they're doing, make sure they're doing it right, and look for flaws. So that's really why, you know, there's, there's several out there. There's Telegram, there's WhatsApp, and others that claim to have full end encryption. Uh, but to me, what you really need is something, uh, a system where you get to control the encryption keys and where you or somebody who knows what they're doing can dig through their software to make sure that it's doing what it says it's doing. Anyway, there was another one that I don't often talk about called Threema, and that's spelled out like T-H-R-E-E and then M-A, Threema. And it's a weird name, but I think it has to do with uh, this particular visual indication they have with three green dots that indicate your current level of privacy and security. Anyway, let me just read a very brief bit from the Slashgear article, and then I'll talk a little bit more about it, and then we'll go to our tip of the week. Threeba, an encrypted messaging service that offers a substantial number of features, has announced a big business change that may increase some otherwise skeptical users' trust in the platform. In its announcement, the Threema team said its messaging apps will soon be made fully open source, making it easier to independently review the app's security and verify their code. While there's no lack of secure messaging apps on the market, some of them are more private than others. There are messaging services where the messages reside on the company's servers. Then there are encrypted messaging services where the company isn't able to access the user's data. Threema falls into that latter category. Unlike apps like Telegram, which is more targeted at the average consumer, Threema is a higher-end product that includes a variety of features, including support for voice and text messages, groups, distributed lists, and sending files like MP3s and PDFs. As well, users can share locations and images and videos. When compared alongside the more popular encrypted messaging app Signal, there was both an upside and a downside. The upside? Threema assigns the user a unique ID, eliminating the need to use a phone number. The downside? Threema wasn't open source, unlike Signal something that was a concern for some potential users. And the article goes on, but basically the implication there is that last downside has been fixed, uh, or soon to be fixed, Threema's going to go open source. And that upside of Threema versus Signal, uh, Signal's actually gotten a lot of heat over this lately. Um, well, actually since the beginning. Uh, the one thing that people don't, don't like about Signal, the privacy advocates don't like about Signal, is the way you register an account is you use your cell phone number, which basically uniquely identifies you. The bonus there being if you give... Uh, signal access to your contact list, it can quickly find out anybody else that has a Signal account because they just have to look up all the mobile phone numbers of everybody in your contact list and they'll say, hey, did you also know that this other person has a Signal as well? You know, so anyway. All right, so anyway, check that out, Threema. Uh, it's got an app you can run on uh, iOS and Android. That's the main way to use it now. They've actually got a web version too. It's kind of interesting. You take your phone app and you scan a QR code to log in on the web. Uh, they do not have like a standalone app for Windows or Mac yet. I don't know if they will, but honestly, most people today use their phones for messaging. So, and the whole three dot thing, by the way, that, that it does this really kind of interesting thing, like it's almost kind of spy versus spy, where you know, how do you know the person on the other end of the of your chat really is who they say they are? Well, they've got this technique. Uh, they've got three little green dots, and and the more dots you have, the more secure it is, and the more uh, more authenticated the person you're talking to is all the way down to, to get all three dots. You actually be, have to be in person with the person that you're going to eventually chat with. And you basically scan each other's phones, uh, using the three app. And it basically says, you know, I'm physically in this person's presence. Uh, and I'm physically scanning the phone that, that that person is going to use to talk to me. And therefore I know that next time we talk, that it's definitely that person I'm talking to. All right, that's the news this week. Uh, sort of. I guess this next part is really a, a news story, too. But it kind of blends into the tip of the week as well. So normally I would just kind of tell you about it, but this article does a really good job. So I'm just going to read the article, and this will kind of include uh, something you can do to either block or at least recognize and avoid uh, these really tricky web alerts. So this is from Naked Security. It says, Internet scammers are always looking for a better way to separate unwitting device users from their money. As with all other endeavors, they've learned that it pays to advertise. At Sophos Labs, we recently researched a collection of scams that exploit web advertising networks to pop up fake system alerts on both computers and mobile devices. The goal? To frighten people into paying for a solution to a problem they don't even have. It's not exactly a new trick. Scareware pop-ups have been used for years to prompt people into downloading fake virus protection and other malicious software, including ransomware. 
but the latest variations find other ways to cash in on fake alerts, using them as the entry point to technical support scams or prompting their victims to purchase fraudulent apps or fleeceware off a mobile app store. Browser developers have done a lot to limit the damage that can be done by malicious pop-up sites, including recent fixes by Mozilla that attempt to limit the ability of malicious web pages to slow down and lock up the Firefox browser. And you'll understand why that's important here in a minute. But even if the scammers don't lock up your web browser, they can make it appear that something has gone terribly wrong, and that you need to do something immediately about it. That's where the potential damage begins, with the victims allowing the fraudsters to gain access to their device and to install and extract payment for totally unneeded and potentially harmful software. These scams reap tens of millions of dollars from their victims each year. A whole industry has sprung up around fake alert scams, including scam toolkit developers and commercial platforms for managing malicious advertising campaigns. Fortunately, these scams are usually pretty easy to spot if examined critically. Like phishing messages, they often contain messages with strange phrasing, capitalization, and grammar or spelling mistakes. And sometimes they even include a countdown in order to make you more nervous, after which they suggest your phone or computer will be damaged. And some technical support scams will play computer-generated voice messages urging you to take action. But all of these scams have one very specific thing in common. They go away when you close your browser. While mobile fake alerts and similar pages on desktop browsers can easily be closed, browser lock support scam pages often use scripts that make it difficult or impossible to close the web browser normally or navigate away from the page, including things like, and there's a list here, 1. Forcing the browser user to full screen size, 2. Hiding or camouflaging the mouse cursor, 3. Launching never-ending file downloads, 4. Popping up login messages that request a username and password, and 5. Attempting to capture keystrokes to prevent navigation away from the page with keyboard shortcuts. Using Task Manager on Windows or Force Quit on macOS may be the only way to escape some of these pages short of a reboot, that and not allowing the browser to restore pages from the last session when relaunching. However, the best way to prevent most of these attacks is to cut off the ad networks that they rely on. Privacy tools such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Privacy Badger blocks trackers used by less reputable ad networks. Reputation tracking services can help as well, blocking domains known to host or deliver malicious ads. As with phishing, education is also key. If you're on your guard for these scams, you're less likely to fall for them. All right, I really thought that was interesting. I actually have not seen this myself, probably because I use Privacy Badger and uBlock Origin and DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, and I have several of these. And of course, Firefox has a lot of this built in now too, that just outright blocks these ad networks from even being able to load. So they're, you know, these little pop-up schemes can't even come into your browser because they're blocked at the, at the source, basically. But I really thought it was interesting, some of, the, some of these techniques that they use to basically make it almost impossible for you to close that browser page. And the other thing to realize is a lot of these pop-ups are made to look just like, you know, local pop-ups. Like it looks like a Windows, a, a Windows operating system pop-up or a Mac OS pop-up. Like they're meant to look, and they can tell what kind of system you're running because your browser helpfully tells it that you're either on a Mac or, or a PC. And so they pop up, but the thing is, these windows can't be moved outside of the browser. Like if you try to click and drag this window and it doesn't go past the edge of your web browser, then it's not an operating system window. It's actually a pop-up from that web page, which means that it's not real. But I mean, you know, how, how clever is that to basically try to make your computer or at least your browser lock up like it's not responsive and then pop up a window saying, hey, you've got a virus or, hey, you've got, you know, your computer is needs to, its performance is suffering and you need to download this software that will make the performance better. Basically, they're, <laughs> they're making it worse and then trying to convince you that the reason it's, it's worse is, is because you're infected or you need their help and then you pay for these things that you don't need. It reminds me of uh, a trip that uh, my best friend and I took out to California back when he was actually going off to his first co-op assignment out in Fresno. And uh, he and I took the classic American road trip uh, in this really old car of his across the United States. And we went through the South and we went down through, you know, to see the Grand Canyon and the Petrified Forest and, you know, all that really interesting stuff down kind of in the South, it's in the Southwest. And as if you've ever been that way, you but you may know that when you get out there, there's often long distances in between gas stations and rest stops. And so there we were, the two of us, two young kids, you know, driving across the country, and we stopped to get gas in kind of the middle of nowhere out in this desert area. 
And it was one of these little kind of rinky-dink gas stations that also happened to be a two-bay garage for repairs or whatever. And I forget why, but, and this is, this has been a while ago, but this guy offered to pump the gas for us. And I think we wanted to go inside to use a restroom or whatever. So like, yeah, sure. So the attendant, you know, pumps the gas. And then, uh, you know, then he, as we're, you know, finishing up and getting ready to come outside, he meets us and says, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it looks like one of your rear shocks is leaking fluid. You know, while I was filling up your gas tank, I, I happened to take a look and, you know, it looks like, you know, you could be having a problem there. If you want for free, you know, I'll put it up on the rack and we'll, I'll give it a look and we'll see if you're okay. So, you know, we're already, we're like, Hmm, I don't know. And, but we're like, okay. So he throws it up on the lift, looks at it. Oh, oh yeah. Look at it. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a leak there. I think we should take care of that. You, you know, you don't want to get stranded out in the desert. And, you know, so now my buddy and I go off to the side and we're like, hmm, I don't know, this sounds kind of fishy. You know, God, we're all of like, we're probably not even 20 years old yet, but we were, you know, really starting to get suspicious. And we're like, you know, what are the odds that this is really going on? And, uh, so eventually we said, you know what, we'll be fine. We're going to take the risk. We'll, I'll have it looked at as soon as we get, you know, as I get to Fresno, uh, but we're going to keep going. So that's like, okay, <laughs> you know, selling it the whole way. So of course we make it just fine. Uh, when he gets a chance, he takes it to another mechanic and that mechanic says, yeah, there's no problem here. So, you know, this guy must've like, he must've had like a, must've had like an oil can on him or something. He must've like squirted the fluid on the shock to show us when we weren't looking. So similar to, you know, the tip of the week in this article about these you know, pop-ups, when you get these things, just beware, you know, they, they may not be real. A lot of them are scams and a lot of them cause problems just to uh, have you pay to fix them. All right. As I said, I had a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, we'll probably have another news show next week. I've actually got a couple different interviews in the hopper now. I've, uh, as I've mentioned many times, we'll be talking to Corey Doctor soon. Uh, I've also lined up a really interesting interview with some more folks from EFF, some people I actually have never talked to before. Uh, about student surveillance. And this is with the COVID stuff. This is really getting kind of nasty. So I'm really looking forward to talking to these guys. So there's actually going to be another, my second ever uh, three-way interview. And one more thing I've got to mention, there's only three weeks left in the book giveaway. You can go there right now. Uh, if you want to go to check it out, just go to this link, go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash firewalls four. Uh, that's F-I-R-E-W-A-L-L-S and the number four. Uh, and that'll give you all the info. I'm giving away five signed paperback copies of the book uh, and 10 digital copies of the book. So there'll be 15 winners. And because you're a podcast listener and you're about to pick up my catchphrase with which I will end this podcast, you're already going to have three entries right there. If you happen to be a newsletter subscriber, that'll give you another couple entries. And if you refer friends, I don't think there's any limit. For every friend you refer, you get another entry. So you can basically stuff the ballot box. And while three weeks may seem like a long time, you know, you get busy, you forget to do it. So, you know, better do it sooner rather than later. This fourth edition has so much stuff in it. So, and for a limited time, you have the ability to win a free copy, perhaps with even a custom inscription. That'll wrap it up. Hope everybody's staying safe, staying healthy, doing all your social distancing and wearing your mask when you're out. So hopefully we can get past this. So until next week, folks, everybody stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.